Most people in Canadian cities understand their fates are uniquely determined by the housing market, whether they own a house or are looking to buy one or rent. Beyond that, if you're not an economist or a financial analyst, all we know is that it's a complex, mysterious, often frustrating world to navigate. It is full of contradictions. Is it an unstoppable juggernaut of rising prices or an overinflated bubble that could burst at any moment and cause widespread financial ruin? And it determines where and how people live, employment opportunities, their priorities, and the causes they support or fight against. It is a big topic. Impossibly big. But fixing it is one of the priorities of the Balanced Supply of Housing Research Node. But how do we fix something that represents such a tangle of outside influences and competing interests? In Canada, there's only so much you can do at any level of government to influence the economy, of which housing represents a huge component. There are only so many levers that can be pulled to try and influence the housing market one way or the other. But what those levers are is a good place to start. This is The Overhead. Understanding Canada's Affordable Housing Crisis. In this four-part special presentation, we will examine approaches to reimagining the urban housing landscape in Canada to ensure everyone has access to a decent, affordable roof over their head. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Let's get into it. Thomas Davidoff is an associate professor at the University of British Columbia, and director of the Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate there. To begin our discussion, I asked him to define a phrase we hear a lot in the housing conversation. I wanted to begin uh, just to use layman's terms and make sure everyone's on the same page by asking, what do we mean when we say the financialization of housing? That is a great question. And my personal belief is I think it's an ill-defined and somewhat meaningless term. I think what people mean is that large institutions with access to capital are buying up real estate in a way that's harmful. So one thing people could mean is that detached single-family homes in the U.S. and a lot of other countries historically were owner-occupied and in the wake of the great financial crisis – have become owned by big financial institutions, you know, like pension funds or REITs or what have you. All right. And how is the type of financialization we see in Canada contributed to the housing crisis in Canadian cities? I would conjecture not at all. Low interest rates have made housing prices higher, but that's just through the standard mortgage market and the ability of people to make payments on loans at a given income. I think people see real estate investment trusts and pension funds getting interested in owning rental properties because rents have been going up. If rents hadn't been rising, I don't think those institutional players would have risen. If financialization isn't the major cause of our steeply rising housing costs, what are the factors at play? 
and what can we do about it? In terms of levers available to various levels of government, when people talk about the housing crisis and and you know soaring prices, uh, people can't can't seem to be able to get into the market. Uh, you know, it's it's getting harder harder and harder to afford a family home or or even just uh, find affordable rent. Uh, what can we do to sort of dial down this uh, apparently nonstop skyrocketing uh, values? Yeah, my opinion is there's two angles, which are taxes and zoning. So with taxes, we have a tax code that tells people to buy real estate, but we have zoning regulations that ask them not to build real estate. And of course, that invites unaffordability. So unlike the U.S., Canada is pretty property tax light and heavy on income and sales taxes. So if you work for a living but don't own property, that's not helpful. So if places like Vancouver and Toronto, particularly Vancouver, raised property taxes and cut income taxes or sales taxes to be more progressive about it, uh, obviously that would hurt homeowners and help renters because uh, there'd be you know lower taxes on the renters. And you'd make a more dynamic economy. Given the role of regulations in the decision to build, you know, you want to tax things where it doesn't discourage activity. And obviously taxing single family homes, they're already built out in Vancouver and largely in Toronto. So you're not really subtracting economic activity. So that's the most obvious thing. Unfortunately, it's politically extremely unpopular because older homeowners lose terribly from that. And older homeowners tend to be a very important factor politically, of course, because they're the ones who vote and there's a lot of them. So we've done foreign buyer tax, we've done empty homes tax, speculation tax, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree. I think the politicians have come pretty close to exhausting the low-hanging fruit politically with raising property taxes. So then you turn to development of new homes. And, you know, Vancouver has this machine, and BC generally does, which is the community amenity contribution or development cost levies where you can upzone underzoned properties and say, well, you know, it's single family now, but if you pay, you can go up to a four-story apartment or 20-story tower or what have you. And that can be extremely lucrative because the value of getting to build more square feet can be, you know, 500 bucks a square foot, right? The difference between construction cost and, and sale price is very large. Mm-hmm. Not only do you get more affordable units because you're building more units and the units are smaller, both of which improve affordability, but you can raise a lot of money for the government, which, of course, could go to supporting uh, low-income households struggling uh, with, with rents. When you talk about zoning being one of the levers uh, that uh, is available to governments to affect affordability, I assume you're talking about moving away from sort of large swaths of Areas and cities that are specifically zoned for single detached or semi detached, uh, older style homes. They would call them stable neighborhoods or, you know, family neighborhoods, that kind of thing that, uh, don't really reflect the demographic makeup of cities and, uh, are very still because, as you say, the, the power of, uh, current homeowners are very adverse to change. Absolutely. Single family zoning, I think we'll look back on with the same eyes as sort of zoos where we weren't kind to the animals, insane asylums, you know, really terrible prison conditions, just as an institution where we're going to be like, what was society thinking? Right. I mean, 
especially today around Vancouver and Toronto, you've got something like 95% of the population can't afford a detached single family home. So you you have laws that preclude 95% of the population from living in, in neighborhoods. It's outrageous. I mean, it's it's incredible that government would use its powers to enforce that. And yet it's very pervasive, you know, 80, 90% of residentially zoned land in, in, in instances. So, of course, that should change. Thomas co-authored a study this spring about laneway housing in Vancouver and its effect on property values. And what that study discovered raises some difficult questions about whose interests need to be prioritized in the housing market. If we have to choose between dense, affordable neighborhoods for people searching for housing and the perpetual growth of property values for current homeowners, what do we prioritize? What's sustainable? That kind of brings me to a a study you conducted. Can you tell me a bit about your study on laneway homes in Vancouver and their effect on neighbors' property values? Yeah, so that's a paper with Source Somerville, my colleague at UBC, and Andre Pavlov from Simon Fraser University. And what we did is we looked at uh, properties that had laneway homes added after that became legal in Vancouver. And the most interesting thing we look at is whether these homes have adverse effects on neighbors. So we compared within the same neighborhood, so seemingly pretty similar homes, next door to homes that were newly built. Because laneway homes are almost never added to existing homes because that's expensive and complicated. When you'll do a laneway home is when you're in the middle of a project. And a laneway home is a home in the alley or back lane, uh, sort of a granny suite it used to be known as. They're something like six to 800 square foot rentals. Mm-hmm. And uh, generally, they replace two-car garages. So what we asked is, does the neighbor of a new home that has a laneway attached to it see their property values at levels below similar homes that are next door to homes that are built without laneway homes? And using transaction data, we find overall in the city a small effect of about 2%, that is to say, uh, a house that would have sold for um, a million dollars might sell for $980,000 instead if it, if the neighbor has a laneway on average. So a bit of a loss. But what we find is that that's quite associated with what neighborhood you're in. So neighborhoods that have low, relatively low prices, and of course it's relatively in the city of Vancouver, so the east side of Vancouver, there doesn't seem to be any adverse effect on neighboring property values. But the effect is bigger on the order of 5 to 7% uh, in the more affluent neighborhoods. So, uh, you know, what, what does that show? In, in the fanciest neighborhoods, it, it does uh, seem like people would prefer to live next to a garage rather than people, which to me makes sense. I, I would rather not have uh, eyes peeping in on my uh, kitchen window. Right. Uh, the the study talks a lot about the, the, uh, the value in terms of property value of uh, privacy or perceived privacy. Yeah, I, I, to me, of course, you know, and laneway homes are less prevalent in the more affluent neighborhoods, probably because if you build a laneway home, you get rental income, but you lose yard space and you lose privacy. And more affluent people would prefer the privacy and the uh, extra yard to money. But in less affluent neighborhoods where people are really struggling to make those expensive prices, presumably 2000 bucks a month, uh, you'll sacrifice a lot of privacy. Is the current idea of buying low, you know, say 30 years ago, watching uh, your property 
property values increase uh, and then, you know, cashing out years later as a sort of life plan, is that still sustainable and or desirable? Or or do we kind of need to think of a a new way to look at the housing market and, and maybe not see housing a, a, as a way to put money into and cash out later and more of just, uh, well, housing in, in and of itself, housing for the sake of housing? Yeah, well, let's go back to the definition of financialization at the beginning. Right. You know, one way to look at financialization is what happens when interest rates fall. And the value of a home, we like to say it should be something like the discounted sum of dividends over time. That is, from today and next month, the month after that, how much economic benefit do you get from owning the house? And that would be something like the rent you'd have to pay if you didn't own the property, minus your property taxes, maintenance, insurance, etc. So that's the flow of dividends you get from owning the property. But money is worth more today than it is in the future, right? You can always save. And so a dollar today, if you put it in the bank or uh, buy a bond or a stock, you get some return on that. When that rate of return is high, you really care a lot more about money today than money in the future. And therefore, the value of a home looks like 10, 20, 30 years of rents, and that's about it. When interest rates are low and we're in a place like Canada where rental growth is very large, well, then those future rents are a big deal in the value of a property. And the duration, if you like, you know, the length uh, of, of, you know, how many years of rent is the property worth roughly, that can be way more than 20 or 30 years. And so the old model of paying off a mortgage loan to buy a property with just a third of your income over 30 or so working years that may be broken. Right. And so that dream is difficult for people to attain. You have to have a big down payment available and you have to make big payments to pay off this asset that lasts forever with only 30 years of your working life. What we're seeing with the really low interest rates and immigration leading to really big growth of demand for core areas is just that ownership has been very challenging. Higher interest rates you know, maybe that takes us to uh, a more plausible model like we had in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, uh, 2010s, even some of it. But uh, mm -hmm. but we'll see how this interest rate environment is going to shake out. I wouldn't be surprised to see rates come back down and then we're probably back where we were. So I think that model is tricky. So the federal government has responded with shared equity. Now, it's a small program, but maybe we can find a way that people have some ownership stake in their own home, but share that ownership with other financial institutions beyond just a mortgage so that you don't have to make those payments and have such a big down payment. That's a tricky contract to make work because you're getting the dividends from owning the property. You choose when you move, and that can be a lousy deal for your counterparty. So investors have been pretty leery about, about and it try, a lot of people tried, but I'm not aware of a lot of success with shared equity uh, products. But it's hard to see how you get away from that because, you know, just a meat and potatoes working person is going to have a hard time uh, coming up with the cash uh, and regular payments to, to own a property. Yeah. And, you know, as an economist, a lot of us think, well, home ownership's a pretty weird institution. You know, we're told as kids, don't put all your eggs in one basket, but you're putting, you know, a thousand percent of your eggs in a single asset if you put 10% down on a house and that's all your money. So, uh, you know, 
big financialized institutions owning tons of rental properties and renting them out to people. And people's primary means of savings is retirement accounts, stocks and bonds. That might be just fine. On the other side of the country, McGill University Associate Professor David Walksmith has been studying the effects of short-term rentals like Airbnb on the housing market. What he found is a sizable problem, but one governments can tackle if they're willing to get tough. David, what is the impact of short-term rentals removing units that might otherwise be housing from an already competitive market? Well, if we dial back the clock about a decade, there was basically only um, one way to make money if you were the owner of you know of a residential property. I mean, of course, you could live in that property, but if you're trying to you know run it as a business, what you do is you go and find tenants, and those tenants pay you rent every month, and you use that rent to cover your costs and hopefully put a little aside for yourself. Mm-hmm. The arrival of Airbnb and other short-term rental platforms has really changed that the situation because now there's a second way to make money off of owning residential properties. And it doesn't involve having any tenants. Instead, you get rid of your tenants and you operate your property as a short-term rental. So tourists come and they stay in it. You make probably more money than if you had long-term tenants. But um, everybody else who's looking for housing um, in that city suffers because there's less housing available. In a nutshell, that's what's happened in Canada over the last decade. Um, Many, many thousands of apartments um, that had previously had tenants in them, as well as many newly built um, housing units, particularly condominium units that might have otherwise had renters, Mm -hmm. um, instead have been operating as dedicated full-time short-term rentals. And the result has been there's less housing available for local residents, and the housing that is available is more expensive than it otherwise would have been. And like you say, this is happening all over Canada. Lots of Canadian cities are trying different strategies to license these short-term rentals with kind of uneven results. And Montreal is is particularly struggling. I think they're second. The the problem is second worse in North America uh, after Washington D.C. Yeah, Montreal is. I mean, it's an interesting case because um, you know it's a city that receives a lot of tourism. It's a big part of the economy. And it's a city that historically uh, didn't have the same kind of housing affordability issues as, you know, Toronto and Vancouver uh, in particular. Mm-hmm. Montreal, uh, you know, has has a, a very large Airbnb market and has been trying for a number of years to shrink that, I and mean, particularly by getting rid of dedicated commercial operations. You know, a lot of cities distinguish, and I think it's quite appropriate, between home sharing, you know, I've got an extra bedroom, or maybe I'm out of town for the weekend and someone stays at my house, from commercial short-term rentals where it's, you know, there's, there's nobody living there anymore. Montreal's tried to stop the commercial short-term rentals, but unfortunately, so far, not with a lot of success. And the result is that you still have you know, many, many thousands of apartments here that are operating, you know, year round. Um, and, you know, of course, with the, the highest volume of activity in the summer. Yeah, if we could get into the specific strategy, it, it sort of goes goes through uh, Revenue Quebec, and then it's sort of up to the municipality to enforce. Yeah, you know, here in Quebec, we've got what I think on paper are basically, you know, pretty close to a perfect set of rules around short-term rentals. The problem really has come down to enforcement. The way it works is that the province of Quebec, uh, through Revenue Quebec, you know, uh, mandates that everybody, everybody who wants to operate a short-term rental in Quebec has to register with the province. They don't put any conditions on that. You know, they don't say only this type of place is allowed to operate and nothing like that. It just says if you want to operate on Airbnb or the other platforms, you have to get a license number and you have to display that license number in person, like in the actual 
outside of your your unit and also online. Mm-hmm. And what's great about this idea is that it it, it makes a, a an important distinction between the, the the kind of the need to gather information about who's operating short term rentals. Because remember that it's otherwise it's all anonymous, right? You go to Airbnb. Maybe it says, you know, the listing is operated by Steve. Yeah. You see a little photo, but Steve probably isn't named Steve and the photo probably isn't, you know, it's, it's all anonymous activity, right? So the province says, we'll take care of the, t- the hard task of getting everybody registered. But then the second half of this is, well, what should we do with that information? In other words, what are appropriate rules on who is able to and not able to operate short-term rentals? And the province has decided, again, I think quite appropriately, to leave that up to to municipalities. Mm -hmm. So Montreal, and particularly some of the downtown boroughs of Montreal, really want to ban commercial short-term rentals. And there are other parts of the province where maybe they decide, you know, this isn't such a big issue, we're going to be very permissive, and maybe we just want to make sure that there are proper safety inspections. So it's a good system in in theory. You know, the province does the registering, because of course we don't want to have every single small municipality have to build their own whole registration system and and kind of chase everybody down. But then the the municipalities set priorities for what short-term rental activity should be allowed, and then they enforce that. The whole problem here is, unfortunately, the province hasn't put in enough effort to making sure that short-term rental hosts follow the rules and and register their listings. So at the moment, we're looking at about 95% of, of Airbnbs in the province of Quebec just haven't bothered to get that license. And when you, when the compliance rate is that low, you know, municipalities, including, you know, the city of Montreal, which has the worst of these issues, there's really very little they can do because they just don't have the information that they've been kind of promised they're going to get from the province. Right. They would need an army of bylaw enforcement officers uh, knocking on doors or... That's right, exactly. And you know, and that and you know, and there's some places that have opted for that kind of, you know, method. You know, just say we're we're gonna set the rules and we're just gonna, you know, send out this, you know, yeah, exactly, an army, as you say. But you know, I think it's pretty hard to argue that that's a, a really good use of, you know, everybody's resources, particularly when in Quebec we've been promised that the provincial government is gonna sort this issue out. You know, I think that if the if the provinces had cities are on their own, which is how it is for the rest of the country. I think Montreal would have developed its own registration system. They haven't done so because the province said they didn't need to. So we're in kind of a, a unfortunately, a, not a great situation here as a result. You do endorse an alternative approach, which is, is basically putting compliance at the feet of the actual platforms like Airbnb and, and alternatives. Yeah, if you think about the kind of the different actors and the roles that they should be playing in Canada, at least, where we, you know, based on the kind of the the way that the, you know, that powers are split up between the different levels of government, I think it's pretty clear that provinces are in the best position, you know, to to handle the aspects of this system that are going to be the same city to city. So that importantly, that is registering everybody, you know, getting licenses for all the short-term rental operators, and then municipalities sort out what they want to do with that, and that, and then the the other big actor is Airbnb and Expedia, like the platforms. Mm-hmm. And you know, the lesson we've learned from Vancouver, which is really the leader in Canada at, you know, regulating short-term rentals effectively, is that you can't rely on individual Airbnb hosts to you know voluntarily comply with these rules to register and it's not feasible to you know to to put in the kind of enforcement effort necessary to get to track down every single last one of them and by the way just to be clear about why it's not feasible it's because of that anonymity right so as a result you know the um what vancouver learned and what i think the rest of the of the country needs to learn as well is that you have to make it the responsibility of airbnb and the other platforms to do the enforcement on this issue. And of course, for them, it's the simplest thing in the world. 
they have to make sure that everybody types in a license number when they sign up to Airbnb. And if they don't type in a license number, they don't get to post it online. You know, it's it's a, it's an easy solution that in Vancouver's case has worked really well. And you know, I, I think it's it's a pretty good test of how serious a place is about enforcing the rules on short-term rentals as to whether or not they've put in the effort to get Airbnb to agree to, to abide by those rules. And using the case of Vancouver, how, how did that city incentivize or, or persuade uh, the, the platform itself to do their own policing? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there, there's no, there's no kind of simple answer to that beyond, you know, persuasion and trying to make sure that they agree. I mean, the thing is that Airbnb now more so than in the past, thankfully, you know, they have some interest in being, you know, regarded as a kind of cooperative corporate citizen, right? Mm -hmm. So if cities, but particularly again, provinces where the, you know, the real power here is, you know, they've got a lot of carrots and they've got a lot of sticks and it's simply just a question of deciding that they're going, you know, to make this a priority. What we've seen, you know, see in in Vancouver, but again, there, you know, there are plenty of examples around the world. If lawmakers say to Airbnb, you know, we need you to do this, eventually they'll say yes. So, it, you know, it's not like it's it's not like there's not a kind of like a secret to it. It's simply just a question of applying political willpower. But it's if they if you don't apply that that willpower, if you don't apply the pressure, you know, Airbnb certainly isn't going to voluntarily do this. Right. You know, obviously, affordability is, is has reached a crisis point in in pretty much every major Canadian city. We we can't lay that uh, at the feet of uh, of short term rentals, but uh, governments only have so much ability to affect the the housing market uh, it, itself. Um, but th- this seems to be one thing that uh, a lever they could actually pull. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the first thing I would say is that I don't think we should be too hasty to, you know, to to minimize the impact of short-term rentals on housing and affordability issues. Mm-hmm. We don't have the level of really reliable evidence about this in Canada that we that I'd like to have. But in the United States, there was a comparative rigorous study that looked at the top 100 uh, metropolitan areas in the US. What the conclusion that it reached was over, you know, the kind of the study period, which I believe was around 2014 to 2017, that Airbnb was responsible for 20% of all of the rent increases in the United States. Hmm. So, you know, that like 20% is quite a lot, yeah. right? And of course, the thing is that that's across 100 different metropolitan areas, many of which don't have a lot of short-term rental activity, right? So in the hotspots, for example, you know, in Canada, that would certainly include Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, you know, that it's going to be more than 20%. In fact, these these impacts I think can like end up being, let's say, surprisingly large given the kind of the, the number of units involved. You know, you, you look at the map and say, look, there are only like twenty thousand Airbnbs in Toronto. How can that have such a big impact in a city of so many millions of people? But of course, the reality is that most houses are just occupied, right? There's not like people don't come and go. The amount of vacant and available housing, you know, that's kind of a, that's at the margins that's available, is a much smaller amount, and that's kind of where the the removal of units to be converted to short-term rentals has its impact. So, you know, that would be thing number one would be to say that, you know, actually these impacts are probably, you know, in, particularly in our bigger cities are probably actually quite large. Mm-hmm. But then the other point, which is the one that you're making is that, you know, if we think about the the range of like policy levers that are available for governments to be pulling on dealing with housing affordability issues, you know, it's very clear that in the long term, the key thing is going to be building more housing, mm-hmm. making sure that we're building housing, you know, that's appropriate for a whole different range of incomes and a whole different range of family sizes and the rest of that. But that's a, a longer term solution. You know, basically, you know, every big city in the country here 
could more or less overnight return somewhere between hundreds and thousands of, of, of rental apartments to the long-term rental market with stricter rules on commercial short-term rentals. And so, you know, I, I'm not aware of any other kind of opportunity like that, that, you know, I, I don't want to say it's easy because, you know, we have cities and provinces kind of struggling to do this right, but it's, it's, it's doable. And so, you know, I think that there, there's no question that this is, you know, this isn't going to solve the housing crisis, but I really don't see why it's in the public interest for, thousands and thousands of, of, of housing units to be taken away from long-term residents here when we're in the middle of such dire housing affordability problems. You know, it's a win-win idea to get those turned back into long-term housing, you know, instead. Okay, so maybe this episode didn't solve the housing market. That's a bigger job than one podcast can pull off. But we can see from these two case studies laneway housing in Vancouver, and short-term rentals in Montreal, that there are options available to introduce a little stability in an otherwise volatile market. We know that governments need to make a choice between prioritizing the value of certain people's homes and adding dense, affordable options to otherwise unattainable neighborhoods. That takes a level of political fearlessness, but it's there for anyone who truly wants to make a difference. And we know that governments can also step in and regulate the so-called disruptors or secondary economies that add even more pressure to an already overinflated housing market. These are only two examples, but a holistic view of the market, of the constant push and pull, give and take, may reveal many of these so-called levers. Each small change has the possibility of an outsized influence for market improvement. And if safe, affordable housing for all is at stake, surely it's worth a shot. Thank you for listening to The Overhead. This podcast is a co-production of Spacing Radio and the Balanced Supply of Housing Research Node. The Node is bridging gaps between research evidence and housing outcomes so everyone in Canada is able to access adequate housing and shelter in our neighbourhoods and communities. The Balanced Supply of Housing Node is part of the Collaborative Housing Research Network, a joint initiative between the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Tune in to part four of The Overhead in August when we expand on the subject of housing values and how to break our addiction to it.